0: If you like what you're listening to, support this podcast on Patreon, patreon.com, search Phil Dawson, or find a link in the show notes, and join up. It's very much appreciated. Thank you for listening. Chapter 20 Transmogrants Ashnaut's reports to Mishra over the following months were regular, if not fully detailed. A few words on progress to date revised schedule of deadlines, a list of new supplies needed, sand for a particular type of for glass, metal from a particular forge, fabric of a particular weave, and slaves, always more slaves. The last were plentiful, but the remaining resources were beginning to wear thin. Most of Yosha had been plundered, and entire villages were now being impressed to work the mines that had not been stripped clean. The caravans from Tomacool and Zigon were less frequent than they should have been, and the quality of their tribute had fallen off. A number of representatives of those cities were dispatched to Ashnod as an example to the others. The Corlesians, still hiding behind a gauzy mask of neutrality, were increasingly troublesome. Mishra was convinced their caravans were havens for Argivian spies who reported everything back to his hated brother. Mishra found that Ashnod's experiments served to increase loyalty and discipline among his own troops. was soon reported that thieves and deserters were sent to Ashnod's camp and never returned. Finally, after many months, Ashnot appeared before Mishra with a working prototype. It listed heavily to the left. It drooled. It shuffled on two feet. It had oversized pins through its wrists, ankles, elbows, and knees, and metal plates strengthening its neck. It was hairless. It lacked teeth. It had dark smudges where there once had been eyes. Its skin resembled bluish cracked plaster and looked as if it had been cooked in wax. It could not speak, but made soft, mewling noises. It stank. When Ashnod gave it a command, it disarmed and almost killed three of Mishra's elite guard and ignored the pain as a fourth guard finally pinned it to the floor with his spear. It tried to fight its way up the impaling pole to claw at its attacker before its organs failed and it died at last. Mishra was pleased and gave Ashnod permission and resources to build an army of her transmogrants. Of these things that were once living beings but now were little more than organic automatons, controlled by Ashnod's words. If Ashnod noticed the fearful and disgusted faces of the Falaji as her prototype was hauled from the dark room feet first, she said nothing. Nor did she notice the dark-robed northern priests among the assemblage, who whispered to each other in excited tones. Despite the relative success of the first prototype, it took nearly a year for Ashnod to refine the process and guarantee a success rate of more than 50%. She spent another year organizing the transmorgified beings into something more than a shambling horde. The red-haired woman's methods were simple and ruthless. She bleached out the minds and wills of her captives as she pickled their skins, making them tough, resilient, and mostly mindless. The rudiments of intelligence remained, enough to follow simple orders, but any trace of personality was gone. It was good that the process warped the body as well as the soul, Ashnod reflected. It would do little good for a Falaji warrior to recognize a criminal cousin among her ranks. Finally, the unit was ready for Mishra's use. The timing was excellent. The Corlesians were traitors. The new kadir had decided and needed to be made into an example before they grew more powerful. Argiv was protecting the northern passes, but if the kadir's armies broke through in the south, near Corlinda itself, the Falaji would have a foothold on the far side of the mountain chain. Mishra sent Ashnod a message to ready her warriors for battle. The artificer replied that she wished to lead the attack herself. In his workshop, the other captains complained to the kadir. How could a woman lead, they asked. What real man would follow a woman, particularly a woman with ill-omened hair? Mishra thought about their complaints and sent another query to Ashnod, detailing his desire for her to contribute to the attack, though he made no mention of leading it. Ashnod took note of the exclusion and returned a second letter, the heart of which was that unless she controlled the entire army, she could not guarantee the performance of her forces. There was a lull in communications until Mishra issued a formal declaration making Ashnod a brevet general for the duration of the campaign into Corliss and commanding the other war captains to defer to her. Mishra himself decamped from his workshop for the Suardi marches, where the army was gathering, to review the troops and confer with the war captains one last time. Several, including old Jarin of the Gestos clan, expressed one last time their concern about Ashnod's leadership. She has a woman, Jarn repeated at the final meeting with the Kadir. Ashnod was not present, for she was readying her transmorgrants for the long march. An uncaring woman at that, the old man added. She is my assistant, said Mishra. I trust her in all things. Do you trust your war captains less? Most wise of the wise, asked Jarn. I trust all to do their duty toward the Falaji people, replied Mishra. She is not Falaji, shouted Jarn and several of the other war captains whispered to each other heatedly. She traffics in the unspeakable. Her abominations frighten the horses and disturb the men. She uses outlander wizardry. Mishra's face clouded, and he snapped. I am not Falaji either, humble servant. Do what you want without my outlander wizardry as well. Jarn's voice stuttered and finally fell silent. A long, tense moment passed, but no other voice came to Jarn's defense. Even Hajar was a stone-faced enigma on his master's side. At last, the war captain of the Gestos clan knelt before his kadir and said, I appreciate the opportunity to voice my concerns, most mighty one, and understand the wisdom of your puissant decisions. The talk moved to other matters, but Jarn did not raise his voice again. The other war captains, though they agreed with the old man, did not broach the subject. In the morning, there was a grand review. Mishra and his aides, including Hajar, gathered beneath their pavilion as the troops passed in review. There were Falagi in the crowds, and Yoshans as well, nervous and uncertain among the desert dwellers. The troops were dressed in their best finery, armor, and robes that would be packed away in the baggage train, and only removed again when was, they reached Corliss's capital. Three units of cavalry trotted past, bedecked in flowing red robes that flickered like flames. Despite his earlier outburst, Jarin was allowed to retain control of the Gestos' cavalry, and he rode, expressionless, at the head of his unit. The sun shone off the wide brass helmets of the foot soldiers, moving in precision review past their Kadir. Then came the skirmishers, younger and a bit less organized, most of them younger sons just entering the military. Then the scouts rode past on their nimble horses, cantering in ornate patterns back and forth before the pavilion. And with each of the Falaji cheered, and even the Yoshin's presence remarked on the grandeur of the warriors and their relief that the troops were heading somewhere other than Yosha. Ashnot arrived with her horde of transmigrants, They were nearly 300 of the creatures lined up in orderly rows. They moved not with the precision of trained troops, but rather with an eerie lockstep, for they were controlled by the same mind. Not a trace of individuality showed itself among them, as if they had been cast from the same mold. They looked as if they would topple over as they shambled forward, but they marched as a single unit. The beasts were clad in only rough tabards of brownish ocean cloth, and those garments looked like an afterthought. Ashnod rode at their head, astride a great black charger. Her cape matched her scarlet hair, and she wore an ornate set of black and red armor, custom-made, it was said, in Zegon. The armored bristled with spikes and was polished to snare the sun and blind the onlookers. The cheers died as she passed before the stand, and the applause was sporadic at best. Mishra's aide sat immobile as the rocks next to the kadir did not respond. The kadir raised his hand in benediction to Anshad, and she returned the salute. Neither paid attention to the lack of enthusiasm among the others. Last came the dragon engines, four new ones, operated by crews working within their bellies, pumping the bellows and keeping the steam pressure high to drive them forward. There were renewed shouts of encouragement as they towered over the populace. Only two of the engines would be sent east with Ashnod. The other two would be sent south along the Kerr ridges, to be spotted by the Corlegians, drawing troops away from the Falaji main attack. The crowd's spirits rose with the passing of the dragon engines, and after the review, the kadir treated the populace to a feast. At the banquet, Ashnod sat at Mishra's right hand, and there was no doubt about the trust he placed in his general. Jarin was seated at the far end of the platform, but many of the other Falaji, including Hajar, stopped to offer words of encouragement to the old gestos With the coming of the morning, the army was gone, east into the mountains, into Corliss beyond. The path they trod was similar to that of Ashnod and Mishra had used to reach Corlinda many years ago. The journey was less smooth than hoped, In the first place, the new dragon engines were not as nimble as the originals. They moved slowly and required a great deal of space in which to turn. In addition, they were noisy, venting steam and clattering like sacks of old nails. This bothered the cavalry troops and made Ashnod realize that any element of surprise would be lost. Then there were the transmigrants themselves, slower than the other troops, slower than the dragon engines themselves, yet they were tireless. Each day, the regular foot soldiers and cavalry outdistanced the shambling, demiveling creatures, and each day around the midnight bell, the living automatons lurched into the camp. Ashnod remained with them and spoke little to the other war chiefs during the journey. At the end of the 10th slow day in the mountains, the advanced scouts spotted an ornithopter. It sighted them as well and retreated back down the pass, flapping its oversized wings in a panic. That evening, after midnight, the generals held council. It would take two days to free themselves from the mountains entirely and to reach the relatively open land of the upper core valley. The Corlesians, probably with Argivian support, would be waiting for Mishra's forces before they could extricate themselves fully from the highlands. A tight battle would be disastrous for the normally mobile Falaji cavalry. Alas and alack, said Jaren, turning his palms upward. We seem to be undone, for the Merchant Nation's mercenaries will be rushing for the pass, seeking to hold it against us. And we cannot turn back in good faith without so much as a single drop of blood being spilt to press on his folly, to turn back smacks of dishonor. There must be another way, muttered Ashnod, almost to herself. If there is, said Jarin, I have no doubt you will find it. It was for exactly this reason that Arkadir, mighty may he be in his wisdom, chose you to lead us. Ashnod looked into Jarn's face for the slightest hint of insincerity, but there seemed to be none. She thought for a moment, then said, We must get out of the passes before the Coresian troops arrive. Aye, but we are too slow, complained Jarin. Would they out-engines? Had wings, so that we might arrive there sooner, but they do not. Ashnod pressed her fingertips together and said, Then we leave the dragon engines behind. Faces fell around the table, and the arguments began. The engines themselves were useful tools, said one war captain, invaluable in battle. They were mobile forts, said another, a solid center about which men could cluster for defense. A third officer noted they provided protection for the army from the Ornithopters, whose pilots had learned the dangers of straying too close. A smile flittered across Jarn's face, but he said nothing. The engines are too slow, said Ashnod finally. We have the transmigrants to provide a solid center to the line. Your abominations are slow as well, noted Jarn. Then they will leave now, stated Ashnod. They will be waiting for you at the entrance of the pass, she turned to Jarn. Unless you have a better plan she asked silkily. No one did. The meeting was over, and Ashnod was gone again, leading her shambling creations ahead of the army and leaving the Makfawa to catch up as best as they could. The army reached the Vale of the upper corps before the Corlysians could respond fully. Still, word reached Ashnod of a large force of Corlysian troops coming up the valley. Scouts had spotted ornithopters in the sky above the Corlysian troop column, Proof, if there still were any doubt of it, that the nation's complicity with Urza's Argivian's legions would be within striking range the next morning. That was more than enough time for Ashnod to lay a trap. The plan was simple. The foot troops were drawn up in the center of the plain, flanked on one side by all three units of the cavalry. The transmigrants stood in the center of the line, serving as an anchor, hidden behind a thin line of foot soldiers. The skirmishers would remerge emerge the enemy van, drawing it to attack the line. The transmigrants would be revealed, and on Ashnod's single, Signal, the cavalry would sweep in along the flank, destroying the Korlegians utterly between the swift moving horses and the unyielding transmigrants. Jarn was politely unimpressed. Falaji cavalry was made for quick strikes, he observed, not for running down entire units of the enemy. New uses for old tools, said Ashnod, who was thoroughly tired of the old Gestos war chief. And if the Korlegians do not take your offered bait, asked Jarn, if they encamp and wait for reinforcements? Then the dragon engines catch up and we fight more traditional battle, snapped Ashnod. Tell me, Captain, would you question Mishra's orders so often and so heartily? The older war captain stiffened, then replied through clenched teeth, I have my orders which are to follow you. We will deploy along the flank and await your signal. In the morning, the Kralijians arrived, a force equal in number to the Falaji forces. Two ornithopters were present, though one darted east at the first sight of the Falaji troops, reporting back to Urza and Taunos, thought Ashnod. Surely neither artificer would be present here. There was no sign of war machines among the troops, nor did she see additional ornithopters. The skirmishers engaged the leading edge of the Corlysian troops, firing slings and light bows. Several units of the Corlysians charged forward, but were mastered by their captains and brought back, and the enemy formed into regular units. The Corlegians made extensive use of mercenaries, Ashnod recalled, so they'd be better disciplined than most of the ocean rabble, then again, they were likely Yoshin swords among the Corlysians, and that might cause them to charge prematurely. The enemy force as a body heaved forward slowly. Its center held through the tight discipline, but the units along its flanks were already ahead of the main van. They were in perfect position to be cut off and defeated. Ashnod smiled as the enemy neared. The transmigrants were in place behind the thin line of swordsmen. To her right, the cavalry rode into view, waiting only for her signal to charge. The two armies collided like prehistoric beasts, and men began to die. Brass hats with spears kept a number of mercenaries at bay, while swordsmen engaged in deadly close combat. Ashnod shouted an order, and swordsmen at the center of the line parted. She gave another cry, and the transmigrants raised their weapons and began to lumber forward. Something happened on the opposing side. The center of the main van, where the commander normally would have his own elite guard, parted to reveal a new set of creatures. There were two types among the Kralisians. Humans in beetle-like armor, and hulking brutes looking like soft, misshapen ogres. Ashnod suddenly realized that the beetle-like armor was the outer covering of humanoid devices, and the soft flesh of the ogres was some type of mud. Automatons, she thought, like Urza's Avengers. The Qalizians had prepared their own surprise at the center of their line. Ashnod cursed as the two centers collided. The Transmigrants would have broken a line of normal humans, but these were no ordinary warriors. The Beetlemen worked like clockwork precision, raising and lowering their razor tipped blades like farmers threshing their wheat. Alongside them, the huge earthen statues waded into the transmogrants, crushing soft skulls with their great hands. The transmigrants would neither retreat nor regroup. Ashnod had not given them the capacity to understand such orders. However, it was clear to the red haired general that they were overmatched, a fact equally clear to the other Falaji footmen and skirmishers. Already they were losing ground only a few steps away from a full retreat. Ashnod's position was a bubble extending in the Corlesian lines, surrounded on three sides by mercenaries and automatons. Ashnod gave the order, and heralds gave the signal for the cavalry. A sudden assault on the flank would still break the Corlesian army and allow her own human troops to recover, she told herself. The signalman unfurled a great crimson banner and waved it at the cavalry. The cavalry did not move. Ashnod stared in disbelief, but her eyes had not deceived her. The cavalry had not abandoned its position. A unit of mercenary archers from Corliss had taken up position opposite it, but the three units of cavalry did not charge. Ashnod cursed again and shouted at the signalman. He waved his banner again frantically. Still, the cavalry did not move. Ashnod looked around. The left flank, farthest from the cavalry, was already crumbling. The Falaji footmen abandoning their spears, and in some cases their helmets, and falling back. Ahead of there, the blades of the Beetlemen were ripping through the Transmigrants to shreds. As she watched an earthen statue picked up one Transmigrant, lift the creature over its head, and pull it apart by its legs and arms. The rotted remains cascaded down on the statue, but the clay automaton suffered no damage. Indeed, the cuts inflicted on the statue seemed to heal as Ashnod watched. The Transmigrants had better success against the Beetle Warriors, and along the ground lay scattered remains of both dead human flesh and dismantled mechanisms. Ashnod looked to her right to the cavalry. Now it was finally moving. Then she cursed. It was moving backward, an orderly retreat in the face of mere archers. It was pulling away. The sight of the cavalry's retreat destroyed the remaining right flank. The troops wavered, then broke into a run. Both flanks were in a full rout, and the only thing holding the center was the remains of Ashnod's unit of transmigrants. Ashnod wheeled her own horse, and a pained look on her face. To abandon her creations felt to her as if the very heart was ripped from her flesh. Nonetheless, they would be destroyed. There was no one else to save them. She spurred her black charger and left the devastation behind her, hoping that the transmigrants would do enough damage to at least slow their pursuers until the Falaji were once more under the safe protection of the dragon engines. The transmigrants had done that part of the job well. For after repelling the Falagi invasion force, the Kralesian advance halted entirely. The enemy might have been hurt more than Ashnod had thought, or they were waiting for resupply. Possibly the mercenaries had clauses in their contracts excusing them from pursuing enemies into the mountains. Perhaps their own commanders were afraid of ambush, thought Ashnod. Regardless, there was no pursuit, save for the lone ornithopter that trailed them west for a day till they reached the dragon engines. Their surprise shattered, their force demolished, the transmigrants slain or lost to the last being, the troops gathered around the engines, reversed their course, and began the slow crawl back to Falaji territory. Half a month later, Ashnot stood in Mishra's workshop before his dark oak throne. She was sputtering in a rage. Treason! I gave a direct order, and Jarn here ignored it! Because of that, we were routed! Most Reverend Juan, said Jarn calmly, we did not see the signal flag for the assault. We had been told by our most revered war general not to attack until we saw the flag. When we saw the battle was going against our force, we pulled back to provide a screen to protect our retreating troops. More would have perished if we had not done so. We were defeated because he ignored the signal flag, shouted Ashnod. I did not see the signal flag, said Jarn, his face impassive, nor did the other war captains. Mishra patted the tips of his fingers together. Do you say my most trusted assistant is lying? "'No, most wise among us,' said Jarn quickly, "'only that we did not see it. "'Such are the fortunes of war. "'A daring plan often comes to naught "'because of a simple thing.' "'He looked at Ashnod and added, "'Or because of a simple mistake in judgment.' "'Ashnod looked daggers at the Gestos chief "'but said nothing. "'Jarn added, "'We did retreat in good order. "'Most of the cavalry was unharmed "'and the dragon engines were undamaged. "'They were, however, heavy losses among the footmen "'and the Brevet's general's own special forces were lost.' "'What a surprise,' muttered Ashnod. Mishra ignored the comment and dismissed the war captain. "'Can you believe his lies?' the red-haired woman shouted at the door while still closing behind Jaren. Mishra's face was tense and concerned. "'I had hoped your endeavor would prove successful. Success ennobles many an experiment. If you had pressed into Corliss, if your creations had secured us a Beachhead, then the war chiefs would be lining up to tell me how they knew you could do it all along.' "'Needless to say, they are not doing so.' "'It's all lies,' replied Ashnod. "'They're afraid of me, of us, of what we can do, of our creations. "'The battlefield does not belong to human warriors. "'The dragon engines prove that. "'The Transmigrants prove that. "'The battlefield is still theirs,' said Mishra. "'His voice held no expression. "'Their swords succeeded where your mindless creations did not.' But you leave me with another problem. Some of my chieftains thinks that I listened to you too much in this matter, that I showed weakness by depending on you. Weakness, shouted Ashnan. Let him try to run an army in the field. I will, said Mishra, because I am sending you to Sarinth. There was a long pause. Sarrinth is on the other side of the empire, said Ashnan at last. Hard on the shores of Lake Ronum agreed Mishra. A nation rich in metals and wood, material that we need here. I want you to secure the fealty of their leaders. You want me out of the way, accused Ashnod. Mishra held his hands open. You are the most trusted of my lieutenants. I fear for your safety among our other chiefs. You should fear their safety instead, spat Ashnod. I do, said Mishra, which is another reason to send you to Sarrinth. "'Take a small force of men you trust with you. "'Gain their fealty.' "'And if Sarnath doesn't want to swear fealty to us,' inquired Ashnod briefly, "'then I will send a larger force,' said Mishra, "'under a real commander.' "'Ashnod bristled but said nothing. "'Mishra's eyebrows arched, and a kindly look passed over his face. "'It was an expression Ashnod had not seen in a long time. "'My student,' he said, "'you do many things better than any man.' Better than any individual in my empire, but you are part of that empire and you must go as your Kadir commands. Ashnod bowed formally. I respect your wishes, most wise among us, she said woodenly. Let me make my preparations for departure. Mishra smiled and said, One more thing Ashnod turned at the door. Leave Jaran alive, said the Kadir. It would be difficult to explain if something horrible happened to him so soon after this conversation. Ashna's brow furrowed, but she nodded. The door closed behind her and Mishra let out a deep sigh. Then he rose from the throne, padded over to his great slate board, and began to reconfigure the legs of his new dragon engines.